If Chinese unrestricted warfare becomes a shooting war, how and where will it start? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Hi, I'm Chris Mayer. The idea behind these podcasts is that the broad outlines of waging war have remained constant through history. Therefore, we can learn a lot about war, and hopefully how to avoid war, by looking at the mirror of history. Just as important, it can provide insights about ending a war in a way that establishes a more just and sustainable peace. Today, we will move from what Chinese unrestricted warfare is to a near worst-case scenario of what it might become. Previously, I said that we may already be at war with China, but not in a way that many people will recognize. If China can achieve its strategic objectives without open warfare, that's fine for China. However, the use of military power always remains an option when it is necessary or unavoidable. If and when the military option is played, then all of the other aspects of unrestricted warfare up until that point should be considered strategic and operational shaping operations. Today, I will use the tension between Beijing, the capital of the People's Republic of China, and Taipei, the capital of the Republic of China, also known as the Government of China on Taiwan. In American military theory, shaping operations are those activities that set the condition for decisive victory when the main combat operations begin. I referred to shaping operations in a previous podcast, but let me do a quick review, again using an historical example. In World War II, the decisive operation would be the invasion of the European continent and defeating the German army in the field. Before the U.S. and its allies could do that, certain conditions had to be set to provide a reasonable assurance of victory. This would be shaping operations. These conditions were intended to keep the German army from being able to quickly respond to an invasion and to limit the German ability to exploit many of the advantages it had earlier in the war. These shaping operations primarily involved the air campaign. German oil refineries were targeted to keep German tanks and trucks from being able to move. German cities were bombed, forcing the German Air Force to move out of France to defend the German homeland. Bridges and railway junctions were bombed to isolate the invasion area. Information operations were also critical, leading the Nazi leadership to believing that the invasion would come somewhere else. Another aspect was convincing the Russians to launch a major offensive to draw German reserves away from the Western theater. All of these served to isolate the invasion area and cripple the ability of the German armed forces to respond. The Western Allies weren't the only ones to use shaping operations. The Japanese practiced it at the strategic level. To maintain its economy in the war effort, Japan needed the rubber and oil of the Dutch East Indies. Think of Royal Dutch Petroleum, better known as Shell Oil. This area is now known as Indonesia. The problem was that the Indies was a long way from Japan and Japanese conquests in China. Japan had to be able to dominate the airspace and sea lanes to both take the Indies and secure them from outside interference. This meant that they had to shape the battle space, isolate the Indies, and secure the logistics lines between those islands and Japan. The first step was to move south from China into French Indonesia, what is now Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Since France had just surrendered to Germany, this wouldn't create much of a problem. Indochina would provide a launch pad for projecting air and sea power into the Indies. The United States, however, objected to this. 
Not only were we worried about Japanese aggression, but we also recognized the post-surrender government of France and regarded that move into Indochina, French Indochina, as the invasion of a friendly country. That was the point when we finally cut off trade with Japan, including the oil it desperately needed. So now Japan knew that it had to stop the United States' ability to interfere. That meant that U.S. forces in the Philippines had to be eliminated. That, in turn, required Japan to be able to complete the conquest of those islands before the U.S. forces could be reinforced. This required the destruction of the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor. British, Australian, and other empire forces were not considered a significant risk because England had transferred significant forces from East Asia and Australia to Europe and Africa to face the Germans. So much for history. What does that mean for us today? Or for Beijing and Taipei? Communist China has always maintained that Taiwan is part of China and the government of China on Taiwan is illegitimate and the province must be brought under the control of Beijing. The international focus is on the Straits of Formosa, the narrow channel of water separating Taiwan from mainland China. But maybe the battle for Taiwan will be fought elsewhere. The People's Republic of China is not as powerful as it pretends, not by any measure of national power and especially military power. It is unlikely whether the Beijing government would be able to successfully conduct an amphibious invasion and defeat the armed forces of the Republic of China on Taiwan, even if Taipei received no outside help. But it's unlikely that Taiwan would be left to itself. Besides the United States, there is Australia, Japan, as well as the Philippines, and even Vietnam. None of these countries want to see successful Chinese aggression against Taiwan. Some of those have good reason to believe that they or their possessions would be next. Even if Beijing believed it could prevail in an armed conflict with Taipei, China cannot afford a major shooting war. Despite appearances, its economy is fragile and its population even more so. Yes, the most populous country in the world has a fragile population. Fifty years of restricting families to one or two children certainly did reduce the population growth rate, but it also created an aging population as life expectancy increased while births decreased. At the same time, there is a strong disparity between the number of males and females born every year, which will have a long-lasting impact on population replenishment. Also, in a society which places high regard on the family and where the younger generation is expected to care for the older, every loss of a child and especially a male child, ends a family line and leaves elderly without adequate care. Every person lost in a shooting conflict is not only a human tragedy. For China, it's a societal nail in the coffin. A second consideration is that the Chinese Communist Party cannot afford to win Taiwan by destroying it. Conquering Taiwan is more than just a matter of national honor. China imports more than 80% of its semiconductors and has no domestic capability for cutting-edge models. About half of the imported semiconductors come from the United States. Almost all the rest come from Taiwan. Beijing cannot afford to destroy the resource that may be a key reason for imposing unification. The only logical approach is to take it without an armed struggle or with only minimal fighting. 
To do that, Beijing needs to isolate Taiwan militarily, economically, and politically. It will begin by convincing key decision makers in the West to regard any action by Beijing against Taiwan as a purely internal matter, as they have successfully done with Hong Kong. Beijing will also present the appearance that communist Chinese victory is inevitable and that the cost of outside interference is too high. Following this train of thought and using Japan and World War II as an example, we should expect the invasion of Taiwan to begin somewhere else. This might begin with efforts to influence Asian countries that the United States is an unreliable ally and that it doesn't care about Asians. Chinese military activity would give the impression of its command of the sea and airways to send the message that any attempt to interfere with what they consider its area of influence to be too costly. As with the British Imperial forces in 1940 and 1941, there could be attempts to divert U.S. and Western forces elsewhere, making them unable to react to actions against Taiwan. Perhaps Korea. Perhaps somewhere else along the Belt and Road Initiative. Consistent with unrestricted warfare principles, use of military force in or near the South China Sea would be threatened, but direct fire combat would be avoided. Ideally, then, the Taipei government would recognize that it is alone in the world, and it would give in to a peaceable takeover by Beijing. Ideally. Beijing maintains, however, that it is ready and capable to reunite Taiwan with mainland China by force. We should not discount that as blustering. We have already seen the beginning of these shaping operations. Beijing's military forces have already occupied islands claimed by the Philippines and other governments, and contested islands and shoals are being built into military bases. Actions the United States has done nothing about, despite a mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. Although the United Nations Court of Arbitration condemned this action, the Chinese Communist government denied the authority of the court. More recently, Communist Chinese fishing fleets, protected by naval forces, have been deliberately massing in internationally recognized Philippine waters. At the same time, Beijing has stepped up its claims about Taiwan and put increasing pressure on governments that still do business with or recognize Taiwan as independent. Recent publicized attacks on Americans of Asian descent are being played up by Chinese propagandists, while other Chinese communist propaganda promotes images of military strength. Using this idea of shaping the battle space, battle, should it come, will not begin on Taiwan. The curtain will rise elsewhere. I do not say that armed conflict with China is inevitable. As I said earlier, I believe that they want to avoid it, but armed conflict could come. It could become of pressures within the Communist Party to force reunification with Taiwan, or because of some pretext initiated by the Taipei government. More likely, however, I think it would come as part of a miscalculation, an accidental missile exchange between naval vessels, over-enthusiastic torpedo boat crews, actions, deliberate or otherwise, that cross the line of one country or another's rules of engagement. Mostly, I think from the People's Republic of China miscalculating the resolve, training, or discipline on the part of any of the nations that feel threatened by Beijing. As much as it is claimed that the West does not understand the East, neither does China understand America, Australia, the Philippines, or Vietnam. Sun Tzu would rate that misunderstanding 
as a 50-50 chance of calamity. So how can we avoid this situation? Of course, we could always feed the tiger, let them take Taiwan. Personally, I think that would be morally reprehensible. More practically, that didn't seem to go too well when the West let Berlin march into Vienna and then Prague. The alternative is to stand up to the bully, to be clear about what we consider unacceptable, and to be willing to and ready to live up to those words. Will that guarantee peace? No, it will not. It is all a matter of managing risk. But we can learn from history if we will just look in the mirror with open eyes. Thank you for listening and uh, watch out for and please join me in the next installment of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer.